All right, well, welcome to week two of Public Problems 101. Um, you have, there's an agenda linked to the video tonight, so as you're following along uh, with the post, you can click on the, uh, there's a link in the bottom below the video feed that will give you the agenda. I'm going to have it up and be working from it just so I'm trying to keep things in time. I don't kind of botch it here. Um, so essentially we're going to have a little bit of welcoming information. As you can see, David Bradford's here with me. We'll do an introduction for him and then we will jump into a, a conversation tonight between the two of us. We're going to talk about medical cannabis and drug regulation. We received a couple of questions from students who are in the Public Problems 101 class who registered. We're going to hit those first. But if you have questions for either David or I as we continue class, just comment on the Facebook Live post. Um, my wife Mia is being kind enough tonight to go through the questions and relay them to us. So we will get those, and at any point in the evening that you would like to ask questions, just send them on to the Facebook Live and we'll get to them at the end. So uh, that's the first thing I wanted to address tonight. And the second here is I'll go ahead and interview, uh, interview. I'll go ahead and introduce David. This is uh, David Bradford. Um, he's at the University of Georgia in the agenda. There is plenty of information to get his bio. He was also the first guest on the Public Problems podcast, a very risky endeavor there. And um, so you can see that if you haven't seen it or listened to it, it's, um, you can get it through SoundCloud, through YouTube, through our Facebook page. We're going to do a little bit of a brief recap of some of the facts we covered that night, some of David's research, and then move on to some updates. Um, with the beginning of this year, the Trump administration, and particularly Attorney General Jeff Sessions, has taken um, some different approaches to cannabis law enforcement, um, and the state of California has made some changes as well that we'll get into. Um, and if you want to look, again, if you want to get any more information uh, on David here, there's some links to his bio, to his Google Scholar, also to the previous podcast in the agenda for tonight. Um, the next thing that I wanted to say is next, um, Next week, class is going to be at 8 p.m. Eastern instead of 7. Uh, Professor Greg Galls is going to be joining us via Skype, so we won't have this quite set up, uh, set up where we're one-on-one -on -one in person. I happen to be in Georgia at this moment in time, and that's where David lives, so we're able to do this in person. But next week, we'll be streaming through Skype on the Facebook Live, but we'll be coming through virtually with Greg. But it will be at 8 o'clock instead of 7 o'clock. Um, the final... Uh, next and the last thing I'll say is that students that are registered for the course, if you'll send your questions to Google Hangout, I have my phone right here, I'm logged into the Google Hangout, I will uh, address those first since you've taken the time to register for the course and be a part of the course, I'll get to your questions before we go to Facebook Live questions if there happens to be any there. And any questions about the course or what we're doing with the Public Problems Platform, we have an email account, it's publicproblemspodcast at gmail.com. You can send questions there. If you're still interested in registering for the course, you can contact us there or find a link to it on um, the Facebook page. All right, so um, let's shift from that and I'll start engaging David here. So we had this conversation not that long ago for the first episode of the podcast. But I'd like to start with giving the audience or again, the students a little back, bit of a background on what's your interest in medical cannabis legislation and what you've been working on uh, over the past couple of years 
from a scholarly standpoint. So what kind of got you interested in medical cannabis legislation and then what does your work, work look like in this area? Yeah, so sort of funny, my, uh, my, my particular interest in uh, understanding the impact of uh, the adoption, the diffusion, and the impact of medical cannabis laws actually comes through uh, the interest of a co-author that I have. Okay. Uh, my co-author, Ashley Bradford, uh, who's my daughter, uh, is uh, a master's student in my department and is going on to get her PhD uh, uh, somewhere else. We'll find out soon. Uh, uh, next year, but uh, she came to me about two years ago, and we were talking about maybe doing some work together, some research together, and and so she said she was interested in this question of understanding how cannabis had effects on uh, different sort of public health uh, outcomes, and so really, while I've been doing work on health policy for 25 years, I had actually not looked much into this question of cannabis until a couple years ago when I started working with her. Um, and the, the first thing we did was try to understand how states would adopt these policies and what drove states to do that. And then the next, uh, the next set of projects that we have, which have actually uh, the ones that uh, have the sort of most, most attention, uh, have been looking at how medical cannabis laws change um, prescription drug use uh, for regular drugs, so statin drugs, or pain medications, or any anxiety medications that people take in, in two large, uh, federally, federally funded insurance programs, Medicare and Medicaid. And um, so we examine how prescriptions changed uh, in both first in Medicare and then in Medicaid. Medicare, uh, Part D is insurance program for, uh, prescription uh, program for mostly elderly individuals mm -hmm. in the United States. Medicaid is mostly for lower income people. Right? Um, and you know, the most recent round of work that we've done, if you take those two programs together, suggests that if every state were to adopt uh, a dispensary-based medical cannabis law. And so a store. Right? Having a store where you can go to, to the sort of <clears throat> cannabis equivalent of a pharmacy and, uh, and buy uh, cannabis for medical purposes, that just those two programs, Medicare and Medicaid, could save between three and five billion dollars a year in prescription drug costs. So, um, not trivial, not a trivial amount of money. So, um, okay, I want to unpack a couple pieces of that. So, you, uh, the big piece you looked at is the financial piece to large U.S. federal government programs, and and I know uh, there's a little bit on opioid deaths that I want to yeah. get to as well. But the first kind of look at this was, okay, what, uh, um, what states are adopting these things and what are the different choices for adopting medical cannabis legislation? Right. And so my understanding is that, and you mentioned dispensaries as opposed to other types. Mm -hmm. So the first piece I want to kind of hit on is how else would you get a hold of it if you didn't go to a dispensary. What are the variations on access to medical cannabis in the U.S.? It's an enormously varying sets of laws. Uh, yeah. As with as with lots of public policy uh, in the United States, this is uh, this particularly cannabis uh, legislation is not a federal issue. Right? These are states that have had their own laws. There are currently twenty nine states and the District of Columbia that have. Uh, that have legalized the use of cannabis, whole plant botanical cannabis, okay. for medical purposes. Okay. There are 
uh, nine states that have approved cannabis across the board for people over age 21 for any reason. So uh, a subset of those, of those 29, right? So recreational or medical, I mean, they just don't make any distinction. Right. There are 19 states that have approved the use of cannabis extracts, mostly low THC, high CBD. So THC is uh, one of the main cannabinoids in the cannabis plant. THC is the is the substance of cannabinoid that actually uh, affects your metal state. So it, uh, it's one that it, the sensation of being high comes from mostly from THC. Uh, CBD doesn't have any psychoactive properties to it. Uh, it's one that's an anti-inflammatory. That's got a, a number of the health benefits: any seizure, uh, any nausea uh, components of cannabis. Uh, much of that comes from CBD. And so 19 states have approved high CBD, low THC extracts. So something that would get you high, but would help for seizures and help for nausea and things of that sort. So together, that's 48 states that have some form of cannabis access. Now, so my home state of Georgia is one that has a, a CBD extract law. Mm -hmm. um, but the, the law is, uh, it's pretty recent, 2015. Okay. Uh, but the laws, of course, vary enormously. So uh, if you look at the whole plant botanical side of things, the laws vary from um, uh, New York may have just recently opened this dispensary, but New York is an example of a state that for a long time uh, wouldn't allow you to grow it yourself, but you could buy it from the dispensary, but the dispensaries weren't open. But if you had a car and you were caught with cannabis and you had a card, it was legal for you to possess it, even though there was no legal mechanism for you to get it. Many states, and particularly the first states like California that first adopted, uh, <coughs> the first one to have a legalized medical cannabis, um, permit individuals to grow their own. And there oftentimes would be limits. So a common limit would be uh, a person would be allowed to have six plants uh, uh, or, or 12 plants, six of which would be mature uh, bearing plants. Right? So only female plants are actually generate uh, THC or CBD, uh, generate the buds from which most of the cannabinoids are concentrated. Um, states vary a lot in terms of what the possession limits are. Some very commonly would say a 30-day supply without defining what that is. Another state, Oregon, for example, remarkably permits 24 ounces as a possession, which is, uh, as you may know, uh, a remarkably large amount of cannabis, right? So, uh, so the, I think in, uh, in lots of states, uh, an ounce is the amount at which it becomes kind of intent to sell. Yes. You just kind of give people a broad. So, so we're going to get So the common ways of getting of getting it would be well, there's no actually approved way of buying it, but we're not going to put you in jail if you're caught with it. Two, you're allowed to grow it yourself. Two, you're allowed to go to a dispensary, brick and mortar place uh, and purchase the drug uh, as you would purchase a drug from a pharmacy. So the, so the first thing to kind of highlight here for people who aren't familiar about medical cannabis legislation, it's like a lot of different types of legislation. The way in which it's implemented in different states varies pretty wildly. And so doing research in this field to try to figure out what's the impact of having medical cannabis really varies based on the type of legislation that you pick. Just because you say, hey, we're going to make medical cannabis available, doesn't mean that mean that doesn't mean the same thing across all these states. Which yeah. you actually highlight in your work, if I remember correctly, about how it might uh, mitigate uh, legalizing medical cannabis might uh, 
a lower overall opioid deaths, but if it's a dispensary based. Uh, so explain that a little bit. It's, it has the largest effect in places where you can go to the store and buy some, right? which makes kind of <clears throat> intuitive sense as well. Sure. Uh, yeah, it is important to make those distinctions. And so when we, I mean, and, and you can't just look at what the law says because, for example, um, uh, Vermont, one of the relatively early states in New England that adopted um, uh, medical cannabis liberalization with a dispensary program. But the law goes into effect uh, at a particular point in time, and it's more than three years before the first dispensary opens. So, so the way that these laws are, are implemented varies enormously. Um, New Jersey had uh, a medical cannabis dispensary-based medical cannabis law long before the dispensaries opened because while the legislature signed, uh, passed it and the governor signed it under pressure, he was opposed to it, and so really drug his feet when it came down to, uh, you know, on getting the licensing uh, up and running. So what we do when we when we look at, for example, dispensary-based laws, we wouldn't in our research count the laws being uh, active unless a dispensary had actually opened in the state. So that involves going to newspapers and looking uh, for the local papers to see when they talk about the first dispensary opening. They may not talk about the fifth dispensary opening, but they always talk about the first dispensary. So y'all did some checks that way to make sure not only was there a law passed, but was it actually in effect and exactly. meaningful? Yeah, exactly. So if the law was passed and said, oh, you can grow it yourself or you can buy it from the dispensary, then we would turn it on because, of course, once the law is passed, then eight weeks later someone could have uh, cannabis in their possession for medical purposes. They grew it themselves. Uh, they're good at it and lucky, right? Uh, but uh, if there were no home cultivation, we would wait to turn it on until dispensaries came in place. And so then when you think about, you know, particularly for the opiate, um, the opiate diversion, we actually have a paper that is uh, about to come out at, a, at a, uh, a major medical journal that uh, shows that in Medicare, turning on uh, medical cannabis laws actually reduces specifically opiate use. And most particularly when dispensaries get turned on, hydrocodone and morphine prescriptions fall significantly. Right? So those are the two vectors. We don't see lots of, uh, lots of action for oxycodone, which is, you might think is a little surprising, but oxycodone use has actually been going down rather substantially in, in, in government sponsored programs. Hydrocodone and morphine sort of painkiller type Pain medication. Right. These are all so we look specifically at the opiates. Okay. Uh, we do see some indications of a response from fentanyl, which is a particularly potent opiate, that uh, illicit fentanyl is a real problem right now for the, uh, the opiate uh, crisis. We have another paper that is under review at the moment uh, that does actually look at specifically opiate mortality, opiate-related mortality. And we find that when states turn on dispensaries, again, uh, the uh, in, in what, Counties that are in states with dispensaries turned on have significantly fewer uh, uh, opiate-related deaths. And then, again, the estimate, the sort of uh, bottom-line estimate for that one is that if all states had turned on this, would turn on dispensary-based uh, uh, medical cannabis laws, then in 2015, there would have been about 1,900 fewer deaths nationwide. So 1,900 fewer opiate-related deaths out on the base of about 30,000 opiate-related uh, uh, deaths, for, for prescription opiate-related deaths. It's something like 50,000, 55,000 now uh, opiate-related deaths in total. A lot of that is heroin and, and not prescription-based, but about 30,000 or so prescription-related uh, deaths. 
So to kind of <clears throat> recap, and this is where I wanted to start, was recapping some of the things David and I talked about in the podcast and laying out some of the uh, some of the conclusions of his research. And then here in a moment, I want to backtrack a little bit and talk about what are the issues around medical cannabis, why is it controversial, why are so many states starting to adopt it as a science different now, and then what are some of the intelligent ways that we might talk about to regulate it when as a Schedule One prohibited substance, what that means. So we're going to get to those things, but what I wanted to start with up front was the work David has actually done. So you can see that he's given a lot of time and thought and published work into particularly two pieces of this, I think, which is understanding how the medical cannabis laws have been implemented and that there is significant variance uh, across how they're implemented within states in the U.S., Um, and all the way from essentially like decriminalization of possession, if you have a card that says you can have it, all the way to kind of think how picture how people picture California or Colorado as going to a retail store and purchasing it as long as you have a card. Those two states being places now that we'll talk about where you can also go to the store. But they have similar establishments that you go into with a card and it's the same kind of Set up. So, some of the states, like Washington in particular, taxes the, the medical cannabis versus the recreational cannabis at different rates, which is really, I think, kind of a silly, a silly <laughs> policy. But. Yeah, and, that, and actually, we have a question from one of the students that we'll get to is thinking about how should it be taxed at a way that is optimal? It seems a bit silly to tax the medical version of it different than the recreational version. I, I agree. Um, which seems it's, it's a really weird incentive. Yes, it's a weird incentive. And as an economist here, David is, uh, understands incentives to yeah. some degree. So what, what I wanted to highlight at the beginning was David's research uh, with Ashley and some with uh, the paper review now is with Grace Beckwell Adams, I believe, and Amanda Abraham. And Amanda Abraham is the how it affects government programs specifically and major federal programs. And the two that David's mentioned, in case people, and he sort of alluded to this, are Medicare and Medicaid, which in the US, Medicare is essentially, uh, not exclusively, but essentially for um, elderly individuals, anyone over 65. Um, And that is distinguished from Medicaid, whereas Medicaid is in general for lower income individuals. And so, because these programs are federal programs, the way in which the spending on them is tracked fairly well, you're able to get access to that information yeah. by state. And, and free. And free, free, free yeah. Data, yeah. Instead of I'm going through insurance companies right. where it's not free. Right. And so, essentially, what David was able to do was gather um, uh, prescriptions and see how they had changed in the amount of prescriptions on, for example, painkillers and other things that cannabis might be uh, prescribed for and see how those have changed in states that legalized medical cannabis uh, compared to states that didn't Mm -hmm. is essentially what David's been able to do and look at what the financial impact of that would be to the programs and thus to taxpayers. Mm -hmm. And it's in the amount of billions of dollars. It could be. It could be. Yeah. If if every state had would turn on a dispensary-based system, it would be in the multiple billions of dollars. Money. And by turn on, you just mean uh, pass a law that allows yeah. them to do it and, and actually implement it. Right. 
And then the second piece that you've looked at um, that as a paper under review is at specifically opioid-related deaths. And it seems like if uh, all states were to turn on the dispensary-based piece of this, that just shy of 2,000 American lives on average would be saved every year. That's right. Okay. So um, I want to move a little bit from your kind of conclusions of your research and, and tell people a little bit about the story of medical cannabis and cannabis regulation in general. And I know a little bit about this, but uh, through your research, I know that you've looked into a little bit more detail. And so what's the history of cannabis? When I talk about cannabis to people in Texas and Georgia, I'm from Georgia and, and have been living in Texas, um, people talk about it in the same way that they talk about heroin. Mm -hmm. um, and not in the way that people talk about the effects of, say, alcohol um, or tobacco, which have their own issues that we might compare cannabis to. But when you talk about it, people think of it in the category of a pretty serious, like, addicting, ruin your life drug that if you take it once or you inhale once, that um, it could kill you in the way that, again, like heroin could. So why do people, what's the story of cannabis in the, I know you're not a historian, but it, this um, seems like, um, my understanding of it is it was a deliberate kind of smear campaign going back to the 20s of cannabis in particular. What is your <laughs> knowledge or what is your, how does that story play out from your understanding? Okay, so uh, I'll uh, you sort of ask two questions, yeah. which is sort of what's the what's the history of, of cannabis uh, in the United <clears> States, <throat> and what's the science behind cannabis relative sort of alcohol, yeah. right? Well, so the history, the history. Go the science, so yeah. Uh, yeah, the history of cannabis in the United States is, is an interesting one, and is, as uh, as you suggest, not altogether uh, favorable for uh, for us. Um, obviously, cannabis is a particular strain of the hemp plant that um, uh, hemp, uh, as people may know, is, uh, is uh, well, it's cannabis. It's just one that hasn't been refined as a hybrid to have lots of cannabinoids in it. But, but hemp has actually been used industrially in the, in the United States since before we were a country. Actually, in some parts of New England, it was required to be on land that you grow hemp because it was so important for growth making. Um, and so, um, you know, Thomas Jefferson and, and uh, George Washington and our other founders grew lots of hemp. Um, uh, cannabis, uh, as the strains began to be refined uh, and it began to concentrate, particularly cannabinoids like THC, began to be used sort of recreationally um, as people use alcohol. Um, and in the, the turn of the 20th century, in the, you know, the 1900s, or so range, um, it began to be sort of popularized in the United States mostly because of people who were uh, who lived here, who who came from or had family from uh, Mexico and Central America. And uh, from a public policy standpoint, um, policymakers at the time who were all white, all male. Um, you know, really, like women still couldn't vote. Could not vote at this time. That's right. Uh, you know, really began to try to use cannabis as a tool to uh, to keep minority populations um, 
in you know a, a, a disadvantaged situ uh, uh, situation. And so, since cannabis was uh, something that was used, as I said, by Central American people and also by African Americans, it was began to be sort of a bludgeon that was used uh, to sort of beat beat these folks around around the head. Uh, began began to be called marijuana. Uh, uh, as a term that was almost used in a disparaging uh, way. So it has sort of a, a negative symbol being in, in, in Europe. Yeah. Uh, and the first attempts to uh, constrain marijuana, marijuana is legal. Uh, the first attempts to constrain it were, were in the 1920s, I think, with something called the Marijuana Tax Act that didn't make marijuana illegal, but did say if you're going to sell it in the United States, you had to pay a certain tax on it, like you would cigarettes today. If you buy a package of cigarettes, uh, uh, you'll notice that there's this little, oftentimes pink or orange uh, paper stripe across the top. That's the tax stamp on, on cigarettes, right? So there's a large tax imposed on, on marijuana uh, that made it really prohibited to, to sell. And so it began to be pushed into the black market at that point. Um, there were another few attempts to make it harder and harder to access, make it something that gave authorities the right to arrest somebody and, and um, you know, uh, Put them in jail if they if they uh, so chose. Uh, the real uh, the real difficulty with cannabis came in 1970 with the passage of the Controlled Substances Act, which gave Congress the uh, the Congress sort of passed this law giving uh, the federal government the right to control the distribution and use of substance certain substances that were deemed dangerous um, and and. Unquestionably, many of them are. Okay, so um, <laughs> heroin, for example, is listed as a controlled substance. Act, very dangerous product, right? So, <clears throat> excuse me. So, there were several schedules depending upon the degree to which the drug was considered to be dangerous, the degree to which the drug had no medically accepted uses, and the degree to which it was considered addictive. Uh, there's five uh, five levels. The most restrictive is Schedule One, and cannabis. Um, and uh, LSD and heroin and methamphetamines are included in Schedule One. Uh, ironically, heroin is not. Uh, I'm sorry. Ironically, cocaine is not. Uh, it's actually Schedule Two. Uh, but the Schedule One drugs specifically require, in the language of the, of the Controlled Substances Act, that it have no me uh, medically accepted uses, medically accepted uses, right, and that it has a high potential for abuse. Now, the most recent evidence that we have. The best evidence from the past 15 to 20 years, uh, one, suggests that in fact marijuana is not a particular, is not a drug for cannabis, is not a drug that is, generally speaking, one that's got a high potential for abuse. Uh, certainly less potential empirically than alcohol does. Or tobacco for that matter. Or tobacco for that matter, exactly. <laughs> and, and secondly, um, as the National Academies of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine um, uh, demonstrated authoritatively this past January, so almost a year ago now, uh, with a comprehensive review of the clinical literature, it's very clear that uh, they found conclusive evidence uh, that cannabis has a wide range of medical applications. And so a plain reading of the Controlled Substances Act would require really that uh, cannabis be shifted from Schedule 1 to a lower schedule, probably Schedule 3 or 4, right? Um, uh, the Controlled Substances Act grants to the Attorney General the right to determine when a drug should be on the schedule and where. Uh, almost since it was passed, the Attorney General has delegated the authority to make that determination to the Drug Enforcement Agency, the DEA. 
The DEA has been asked several times uh, about a year and a half ago by five senators in particular uh, requested that it reconsider the scheduling cannabis because of the evidence that we had even before the National Cannabis of Sciences uh, report uh, to, to reschedule the DEA has refused to do so. Um, there is the final little bit of, of, uh, of history about this is that beginning in 1996 with California states looking at the evidence, the, uh, what policymakers believed in the state's clear evidence of, of benefit for certain conditions, nausea, uh, eating disorders, uh, pain, spasticity, um, they began uh, legalizing cannabis from the state law. Um, and so um, this was something where state laws began to be, of course, in conflict with federal law at that point. And uh, the cannabis, the medical cannabis, the legal cannabis industry uh, was really kind of uncertain as to how it was going to proceed. It proceeded in bits and starts really until the Obama administration and uh, Deputy Attorney General uh, James Cole uh, wrote what's called the Cole Memo mm -hmm. that, that essentially said um, <clears throat> that uh, the, the, the Department of Justice is not going to go after anybody that, uh, that uh, Uses cannabis in adherence to the state law, and gave some, uh, and also suggested to the Treasury Department issued a separate memo uh, that gave some safe harbors for banks so that they could open bank accounts. Um, and uh, then there was a Rohrbacher uh, amendment that was put in place, has been put in place every year for the past since 2001. Is, is that right? Since 2001, uh, that every year with the budget for the Department of Justice sort of back up the Cole amendment. The Rohrbacher, the, I'm sorry, the Cole Memo, the Rohrbacher Amendment has uh, explicitly prohibited the Department of Justice from spending any federal money to go after a person that is behaving according to their state cannabis laws. Um, all of this is now thrown up in the air because um, uh, the Rohrbacher, uh, Rohrbacher Amendment uh, will expire with the, uh, the expiration of the budget uh, a continuing resolution in uh, January 22nd of, of this year. Uh, if it's not renewed, then that would actually allow the Department of Justice to spend federal money to go after people. Uh, Attorney General Sessions has requested that it not be included in the budget this next year. Attorney General Sessions has just in the last week revoked the Cole Memo, Cole memo uh, basically saying that now the, the um, federal attorneys in the federal districts are free to go after uh, go after um, cannabis consumers and producers if they choose to do so. Now, as of right now, they can't spend any federal money to do it. So it's still, um, or at least for the, on the medical side, the recreational side, they are free to, to do that. For the medical side, they're, they're not. The Rohrbacher. Because of the Rohrbacher. The Rohrbacher. Uh, <clears throat> right. So, um, so yeah, it's, it's in flux, and we're not really sure where it's going to be. So that's, that's the history. The science is interesting as well. Yeah, so before you, uh, I'd like to talk about the science because I think there's a lot of misinformation about the science and talk about some what was in the National Academy's report. One of the pieces that I remember from, <clears throat> I was kind of re-looking at it today, getting ready for today, was one of the main conclusions is about the, uh, the ability of it to treat pain. And mm -hmm. so just as a kind of throwback to all of your work, the National Academy of Science, one of the clear bit, one of the clear uh, symptoms or one of the clear uh, medical conditions that cannabinoids can treat, THC and CBD can treat, is chronic pain. Correct. And so that's that's why in your research you picked uh, pharma uh, uh, 
pharmaceuticals that were directed at chronic pain, right? Example. So, I want to recap some of what you said about the history and make sure I'm hearing it correctly. Um, one of the things that uh, that I that I noticed that you included was a, a, the Controlled Substance Act in 1970. Yeah. And as I recall, that was sort of as the Nixon administration was ramping up the war on drugs. Yeah. Um, and one interesting piece of, And not inappropriately for many substances. For many substances, right, right. Yeah, yeah. But there was a piece of that, so I, they, I know in, um, for example, this past semester I had a group of students do a major research project on the war on drugs. Mm -hmm. It also seems that while some of it was uh, targeting drugs that, that arguably needed to be controlled in different ways, and the scheduling system might be a, a useful way of doing that, maybe we'll get to that a little bit later, but it, some of the stuff that's been released since then really suggests that it was racially motivated all the way up through the 70s. Mm -hmm. And then it certainly seems clear that the way in which it's been um, <clears throat> Um, administrated or the way in which it's gone through the judicial system has the implementation of it, the administration of it, has disparately been towards uh, communities of color, for sure. example. Right. And I think there are some, exa uh, uh, some examples of N the Nixon administration uh, including things like cannabis purposefully because they knew it was common in those communities and could use it as like a suppression or fear tactic. Um, and so that piece of it I know a little bit more, or, or learned some about as well. But to get on up through kind of the 96 was the year in which California um, um, passed medical cannabis, and uh, there's been a lot of states since then. And then a couple of things that you mentioned that I wanted to highlight as well were some of the things that have happened since we had our podcast. Mm -hmm. So a few of these things that uh, David's mentioning, you can also hear us go on for I think about an hour and 20 minutes, uh, a little over an hour in the first podcast episode of the Public Problems in season one. But since then, some of these new things that you've talked about have changed. And we were actually talking about then, the question mark then was what is Sessions gonna do? Mm -hmm. And you actually have an op-ed, I believe in Bloomberg, with you and Ashley kind of saying to, to, to folks like, let's hold Sessions to, not uh, not going backwards on this. So let's be more responsible with how we think about cannabis. Right. Like there's good evidence now that it shouldn't be a schedule one. Correct. Um, that it probably should be a schedule three on the science, which we're about to get to. But instead, he's kind of gone. Uh, so he certainly was not paying attention to your op-ed, unfortunately. Well, I mean, <laughs> I mean, he's not paying attention to uh, he's not paying attention to people either. I mean, it's uh, the, the amazing thing, at least you know, from the medical cannabis side is that this is um, as settled an issue in public opinion as you can imagine. Right? So the most recent Quinnipiac poll on the question of medical cannabis uh, conducted this past summer um, showed that 94% of Americans approve of giving people access to cannabis for medical purposes. 96% of Democrats and 91% of Republicans. So, I mean, as far as medical cannabis goes, it, I, I honestly cannot think of another public policy area where there is such unanimity in the country uh, and the policy is actually against what 
94% of the population wants. I mean, even with regard to recreational cannabis, which only about 64% of Americans support, if you ask them the question, do you support giving unfettered access to cannabis uh, to adults? About 64% would say yes to that. So a large majority, but not 94%. But if you ask the same people, uh, do, do you support the federal government intervening to counter to countervene state policies, 76% of Americans say no, we don't want that, even for recreational cannabis. And so, I mean, this is an issue where Sessions uh, and the Trump administration and the opponents of cannabis liberalization have just lost the argument, right? Um, and so, yes, Sessions has said he wants to restart the war on drugs, and yes, he wants cannabis to be included. But so far, he's just talked. Yeah. Um, and We'll see what happens. I mean, it's one of the things that's actually, since he came out, uh, a half dozen or so Republican senators have signed on to the cannabis legalization bills that are currently in the Senate. So it may be, in fact, that, that Sessions, ironically, is what pushes us over the edge to having the federal government stepping back and, and not saying, okay, now everybody can consume it, but saying, we're going to let the states decide what to do. Uh, and so um, I think that gets us up to the kind of history. I, the history. I also one one piece of this, other than the, the particular cannabis that I think is interesting, is again the the racial disparities. And one other thing I wanted to highlight is that California uh, passed last year what is Prop sixty four, which is uh, making uh, cannabis available for recreational uses. But the interesting piece of it that come up in the war on drugs stuff that I uh, seeing from from students and some of uh, my own just kind of looking into it is the bill actually retroactively makes a lot of cannabis uh, crimes misdemeanors instead of felonies and so there was a special one I think on uh, uh, Vice Night News uh, which I watched with some regularity a couple nights ago um, about the what it's doing for the criminal uh, for the the uh, the prison system, which is there is a lot of people, first our prisons are overcrowded, which is not a topic we need to go way down, but it's, I forget what the numbers are, but it's not even close, both in per population and total number of people in prison, the U.S. Uh, is is the leader. And oh, yeah, by factor three. Probably. Yeah, by, the next several countries combined, I believe, and a large piece of that is these is an, is drug offenders, and a large piece of those is are related. A lot of it's related to other drugs. A lot of it's related to cocaine and, uh, and and crack and other and other drugs. But a lot of it is cannabis related. And what's interesting about Prop sixty four from like a, a public problems framework or broader lens is it retroactively. Uh, takes those charges down from felonies to misdemeanors, which means people can apply for jobs without having to list that they're a felon. People can vote that couldn't vote. And so that's sort of a new, and I believe that California is the first state to pass it retroactively. I think that's right, yeah. Um, and you know, one of the things, that's, one of the myths that's often thrown around by uh, people who want to maintain the status quo as far as cannabis laws goes is that, oh, well, nobody ever goes to jail for for just possession of marijuana. We're only putting the drug dealers in jail. And that's just not true. Not true yeah. uh, I mean, it, it, you know, to some degree, you know, I think it's it's a fair characterization to say that most of the people in the public policy arena, uh, elected officials who are advocating for the status quo for cannabis policy are mostly 
white men, uh, uh, and it's true that their kids oftentimes don't go to jail for simple possession. But it's, it is, however, the case that lots of black and brown kids go to jail for simple possession. And so, yes, California is the first state that basically says, okay, uh, we need to let you out of jail. Which is on several other policy problems like uh, racial disparity and outcomes and uh, criminal uh, having so many people walked away in right. the U.S. Okay. It's expensive in a lot, well, yeah. a lot of ways. Right? And then this goes back to your research, right? Not only uh, is that are we saving money on the medical cannabis piece to major federal health programs like Medicare, which we care about how much is being spent there and rising health costs, but also on the other side of it, which is the, the, the judicial system and the prison system. It's expensive to have people in jail for um, non-violent drug-related crimes. Yeah, we, we, it costs us money to adequately uh, house them, and it costs us an opportunity costs. They're not out being productive in the community. Right? Mm -hmm. So it's, a, it's quite an expensive proposition. So we've sort of been skirting around the science piece, and I, given that we've already had this conversation once, I often forget that we need to go back to that place um, and talk about the science, particularly given the um, the way in which cannabis or marijuana is often thought of kind of just in everyday conversation um, as being similar to heroin. So what is what did the National Academies of Science broadly find about the harm to cannabis versus the potential benefits, at least from a medical perspective? Sure, as I said there, um, cannabis is a, is a complicated plant uh, with lots of active ingredients. Broadly speaking, they're mostly referred to as cannabinoids. So THC and CD are the two um, most prevalent cannabinoids in a cannabis plant. There's also things called terpenes that are in cannabis. Um, um, the smell of a lemon is, is uh, from a terpene. So things that give uh, that give cannabis its odor. So so um, limonol, which is the smell, the terpene that gives lemons a smell, also present in in, uh, in cannabis. It's not, by the way, an accident that many people on smelling lemons have a mood enhancement. It, it smells good, and people re usually react to it positively. And that same reaction is embedded in the limonols uh, in cannabis as well. So the ter uh, the terpenes uh, and the cannabinoids are psychoactively are psychoactive and they're biologically active anti-inflammatory, like, like the ibuprofen, that anti-inflammatories and uh, anti-seizure uh, compounds. So really, uh, National Academies of Sciences and 20 years worth of, of good uh, medical research has indicated some significant health benefits associated with it for, for you know, a, a defined set of conditions. Um, now, as far as uh, how does it stack up against um, something like heroin or something like alcohol. Or mm -hmm. um, tobacco. Or, yeah, but let's just focus on, on those two things. <clears throat> heroin and, and oxycodone and fentanyl, essentially the same uh, compounds that are derivatives, either extracts or derivatives of the sap of the poppy plant, right? Um, uh, interact with what are called opiate receptors in, in your body. These, these are nerve endings that uh, can be suppressed by, uh, nerve endings that can suppress the, the, the nerve function uh, by, by opiate uh, molecules. And uh, these nerve endings are found in your gut, 
Uh, they're found in uh, throughout your body for the opiate receptors. And most critically for this conversation, they're found uh, in your brainstem very near to and coincident with the, the portions of the brain that control respiration and heart, right? The, the autonomic um, uh, nerve center of your brains. And when opiates go in and suppress the action of the opiate receptors, they also suppress the action of the nerves that help you breathe. Um, and so it's very easy to overdose on an opiate and die from respiratory arrest or, or cardiac arrest, even if you get enough of your brain forgets to breathe. Forgets to breathe. Um, and uh, for a drug like uh, heroin, uh, the ratio of the fatal dose, the fatal amount of the drug that a person would take over the median dose, the therapeutic dose that a person would take, is around five. So five times the median dose would kill 50% of the population with an opiate. It's very dangerous. Mm -hmm. A fentanyl is worse than that. I don't know that number off the top of my head. But the, that ratio I just gave you was from a hydrocodone. Okay. Um, alcohol also has receptor, acts on receptors that are embedded in your, around your autonomic system and your your uh, respiratory system, and so uh, 10 times the median dose of alcohol would be enough to kill 50% of the population. Now, cannabis doesn't act on your opiate receptors. It acts on your cannabinoids, your, in, your endogenous cannabinoid system. There are cannabis, cannabinoid receptors throughout your body as well. It turns out not in your autonomic system near the centers of your brain that control your heart rate or your respiration. So it turns out that you actually cannot die from cannabis. So the ratio of the fatal dose to the median dose for cannabis can't be measured because as the National Academy of Sciences report points out, uh, there's not a single documented case of a person ever dying principally from cannabis. Now people do stupid things when they're on cannabis and kill themselves because they run into, you know, they have a Auto accident or something, but you there's you can't get enough cannabis. Can't you cannot overdose on cannabis. Um, and if you take too much and do something stupid and die, right? But just the act of consuming it, it can't kill you. Right? Uh, and in the same way that uh, psilocybin can't kill you either, right? Uh, so psilocybin is the, the active ingredient in, in mushrooms, and LSD is also not associated with your uh, your your autonomic system. It can't kill you. And now again, these are not. These are not benign substances, right? So I'm not saying, oh, sure, go out and eat all the mushrooms and smoke all the cannabis you want. <laughs> but just as a matter of can you overdose and die on that? Uh, so in that sense, they're biologically much, much safer than an opiate, much, much safer than uh, alcohol. Um, and like alcohol, THC has a similar kind of effect on, on your body. So people consume it because it... Like, I like alcohol, it makes them feel good. Mm -hmm. um, but as far as the science goes, it it's, can't, can't kill you. And the most recent evidence we have, and by I said most recent, the last 15 years of research, also suggests that in terms of, uh, in terms of addiction, cannabis is far safer, far safer than opiates and far safer than alcohol. Cannabis, the, you know, uh, with opiates, for example, your body develops tolerance pretty quickly to them. So that in order to get the same physiological response, you need in to increase the dose pretty rapidly with an opiate. And, and there's all kinds of negative associations with withdrawal from opiates. Um, cannabis doesn't have that level of tolerance to it. People do develop tolerance, right? 
but it's a very, very gradual, very long-term process of developing tolerance to, to, to cannabis. Some people will become addicted to it. Some people, I mean, almost no one will become physically addicted to it. And the way you would be physically addicted to an opiate, where withdrawal could be very dangerous. But you can become physically addicted to alcohol, where withdrawal will actually kill you, right? Um, that, that, that doesn't happen with cannabis, but people can become dependent upon it. <clears throat> As I recall, the best estimates would suggest that, that somewhere around 8% of the population might be susceptible to dependence on cannabis. That's a lot lower than opiates. It's perhaps a quarter of the rate of opiates and maybe half of the rate of alcohol. So um, it's not particularly addictive. Uh, not addictive. It's not particularly uh, dependency-inducing. Uh, so there's not actually great uh, probability of dependence like the Controlled Substances Act requires for Schedule One, And uh, it does have lots of medical uses. And so, as I said, it shouldn't be, a, it shouldn't be Schedule One just if you just apply the Controlled Substances Act as it's written. Yeah. So the reason there's a, a physiologically, it's not physiologically dependent. Um, that for, <clears throat> for most people. For most people. Yeah, of course, everything can be, sure. I, I'm, I'm sure I'm quite dependent on caffeine myself. Yeah. I drink uh, <laughs> coffee every day. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, and so, yes, of course, I don't want to give your, your, your students or the viewers the impression that, oh, well, this is just like water, uh, it's just like an aspirin, you know, uh, take it and don't worry about any negative consequences. Any psychoactive substance, any physiologically active substance has risks associated with it. And, you know, uh, young people, for example, with very plastic brains, we know that the prefrontal cortex is still very plastic and under development for people until age 24, 25, right? Um, uh, when people are learning to sort of uh, respond to, uh, respond to, uh, you know, have internal motivations when they're young, uh, things like cannabis that tend to decrease anxiety, but as a consequence, decrease internal motivations could be quite problematic. Um, and so it's not that cannabis is without risk, particularly for young people, um, but everything that we consume has risk. Every drug that you can go to a pharmacy and get a prescription filled that your doctor helps manage, every single one of those can kill you at the appropriate doses, can be misused, and has risks associated with it. Every drug has a label, go so the drugs at FDA, pull down the label, read the contraindications, read the risk factors, read, I mean, just watch the television. Almost so, comically so. Yeah, the drug right, exactly. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. just goes on and on. So it's very, very important for people who advocate for rational, evidence-based policy to not be a Pollyanna about this, right? Mm -hmm. There are absolutely a risk associated with cannabis, and we shouldn't ignore them. But the risks, the risk profile for cannabis is a lot more favorable than nearly anything else in the pharmacopoeia, and certainly a lot more favorable than something like alcohol. So, and that's something that the National Academy of Sciences report highlights too. Yeah, to, exactly. to your point, it's, it's not that this is, I think the like water or like air is kind of a good example. It's not that there aren't potential risks or potential negative health consequences. Right. And I think the, the National Academy of Sciences report, one of the things that I remember reading from it was, for example, if you take cannabis through smoking, the the frequency with which you get bronchitis, or the probability you get bronchitis, for example, it goes up. Sure. And then the uh, and schizophrenia. People with a predisposition for schizophrenia, yes. there does seem to be evidence that exposure to 
to some of the can we don't know which one, but cannabinoids through, through the use of cannabis can trigger the, the latent schizophrenia tendencies that people have. So absolutely there are people who shouldn't consume it. There's no question. There are documented, carefully scientifically examined medical purposes that carry lower risks than alcohol, much less other sort of pharmaceuticals that we take with some regularity or that are widely prescribed and widely used. We know they have risks that if you take 12 pills instead of two, 12 will kill you, right. uh, but two won't, and it actually has these positive benefits. Yeah, there's no question. I mean, like with anything else, people have to be responsible. Uh, and, uh, and people need to, uh, I mean, for the median person, cannabis is very safe. Um, and for the median person who might, I mean, this is not my area of research, but just looking at the evidence as far as the as far as the, uh, the safety profile goes, you know, if you're saying, oh, you're going to a party and you're going to have a cocktail in your hand, or you're going to have some form of cannabis in your hand, from a safety standpoint, we probably prefer people to have cannabis in their hands rather than a martini. Um, and so people use help. it for the same purpose. Right? I mean, if you go to a cocktail party, everybody's holding a drink because they're anxious and, and they're being awkward in a social situation and for 15,000 years or so people have relied on alcohol for that. But we've known for 15,000 years or so that you can abuse it and, it, and bad things can happen. And, uh, uh, cannabis is safer than that, but we shouldn't pretend that it's perfectly safe. Okay, I think we could keep going on this direction, but I know we had a couple students in questions before class. Okay. So I want to address those, and I see that I've gotten a couple of messages from Mia, and so I think we've gotten a few from Facebook Live as we've been going. So I'm going to uh, reference my phone and reference the two uh, uh, sets of a couple sets of questions that we got before we started, and see if one makes sense. A uh, couple makes sense for either me or you to uh, to address. So let me get this pulled up. Of course, all right. So one student says, um, we'll, we'll start with this one. This is in your wheelhouse as an economist. Um, and the, the first question is how much to tax? And so this student uh, was aware that if you, uh, and you mentioned in your history that um, as different sorts of taxes were applied and it was made difficult to get on the uh, regular legal market that it pushed people to the, um, to the EU market, to the black market. And so this student is concerned that, okay, states that have been uh, uh, legalizing particularly for, say, recreational uses, um, what is the, what type of tax should we think about? How large, and at what point does a tax become counterproductive, whereas if people are pushing for, say, in this example, uh, legalization of recreational use, that you just end up pushing things to the black market in mm -hmm. ways. So I think that's a good uh, starter question for an economist to think about how would how should we go about taxing it if we believe that it should be uh, recreationally available, which we haven't touched on. I think we might get to, but how can a tax actually be harmful rather than helpful in this case? Well, yeah, it, it's interesting. I'll, I'll try to answer this question uh, without relying on too much jargon, uh, <laughs> because in economics, actually, there is a pretty clear answer to the question of how much should you tax something? Um, so um, there, when you, when if uh, if I went to the store and I bought a can of Coca Cola 
uh, and I drank a Coke. I've engaged in an exchange with the store, right? With the nope. 7-Eleven. Right? So I give them, I don't know, what is a dollar? A dollar, and I don't know how much I can, but I don't drink so I give the store a dollar, they give me a Coke, we've had an exchange. Mm -hmm. I drink my Coke and I throw the can out the side of the window, out the window of my car. It's littered now, sitting on the side of the beautiful streets here in Georgia. Uh, and you drive by, you see it, and you feel upset because somebody has just littered. So you're hurt uh, as a consequence of that exchange between me and the store, you had nothing to do with. Mm -hmm. That's called an externality in the sort of language of economics. So like external, external involved involved in transactions. Some cost or some benefit, but some, some, we're concerned here about cost, some cost that is imposed on third parties that, uh, from an exchange that they had nothing to do with. So uh, if, uh, again, uh, I go to the store and buy some cigarettes and I'm sitting here in, in this room and I'm smoking the cigarettes, you're inhaling the secondhand smoke, you're harmed by that. You had nothing to do with me buying the cigarettes or my consumption or my enjoyment of the cigarettes. That's an external cost. Now, how much do you tax something? Economists would say that if you want to get the efficient outcome, like a perfectly competitive outcome, you should impose a tax uh, on anything that has a negative externality, and the tax should equal the amount of the negative externality. Right? So if I figure the secondhand smoke uh, and uncompensated healthcare costs uh, are about you know 50 cents per pack of cigarettes, if you can calculate that, then that's the external cost of cigarettes, and I should impose a 50 cent tax on it. And that makes the system, the market, the market system work efficiently as if it were perfectly competitive. So the question is, uh, from your student, as an economist, what tax should you put on marijuana? You should put a tax that equals the negative externality per ounce, right? Problem is there aren't that many negative externalities associated with cannabis, so it's not clear that there should be any tax uh, uh, from that standpoint. Specifically, the traditional sin taxes in that way, like alcohol and tobacco or sugary goods. Yeah, but those sin taxes are you know there's two components to it. That, so what is the efficiency component? There should be almost it's not clear there should be much for cannabis if, if anything. The second is well actually there's three reasons a tax. One is uh, it, I consider it a sin. I don't want to stop it, right? And then you put the tax on it as as high as you can to make people stop it. And, and some component of cigarette taxes are like that. If you go to California and you buy a pack of cigarettes, I mean, there may be a four dollar tax per pack now. I mean, it's extremely uh, prohibitive and is trying to actually be, have people not consume it. Right? It's not the reason we're putting taxes on cannabis. The third reason is how about revenue, right? Government needs revenue to function. Uh, I could give you an income tax, but another thing I could give you a sales tax. I could I tax the bread and the sausage and the and Coca-Cola and, and uh, the apples that you buy. I could tax your cannabis as well just to raise revenue. Mm -hmm. At that point, I don't know what the right number is. It's going to depend on what state policymakers need as far as revenue goes and what their constituents are willing to vote for. But from a purely economic standpoint, the tax is probably pretty close to zero. At some point, there is in other with other substances and other goods, there is examples of if you tax something, if you raise a tax too high, people try to avoid it. Well, sure. I mean, if you can, you can look at the experiment in prohibition of alcohol in the United States in the 1920s as putting uh, an infinite tax, well, not an infinite tax, but thousands and thousands of dollars per drink tax because if you're caught with alcohol, you're put in jail, right? So that's that's just another way of saying the tax. Uh, it didn't work very well. 
prohibition did not work. I think there are lots of movies about how poorly yeah. it worked in a whole <laughs> <laughs> symbol it, it, of the gangster. Actually, actually, prohibition against alcohol worked exactly like prohibition against cannabis. It created a criminal class that then had incentives to undertake criminal enterprises. Absent the prohibition, you wouldn't have that. So just for those of you who still following along, it is eight. We're going to keep going through questions. I chatted with David beforehand. We have some time. Um, so we're going to keep cramming through a few questions, probably go as late as 8.30. So for those of you following along, we are going to keep trucking along for a little bit just to kind of give you a heads up. Um, a second question um, coming from the same student, actually, was that as uh, legal cannabis expands, this person is worried about um, monopoly power. So this person is worried about as uh, legalization expands, the actual question says, uh, turns into big tobacco 2.0. So one issue with that is it doesn't seem to have the same health consequences as tobacco, but it, in the sense that there's a commercial cannabis industry, businesses will have strong incentives to create and maintain heavy users who, uh, who use it uh, more than they reasonably should. And so what would, to people who are worried about as we create markets uh, for cannabis, that it just leads to sort of big pharma or big tobacco, what, uh, are, how concerned about that would you be and what are some of the pros and cons to bring it in into the kind of capitalistic legal market? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, uh, I'll take the con side first and then I'll end up with the pro side of that. Uh, on, the, on the con side, yes, you could imagine there being some thing that would cause monopoly power, right? Uh, it, there's not, it's not an industry that has lots of uh, barriers to entry. It's not expensive to grow cannabis, and there's nothing that says, oh, well, it's like a railroad. You need to have you know one gigantic railroad, and it's inefficient to have 12 because they're building tracks right next to one another. So there's no natural monopoly. But whenever you get government regulation of something, um, then monopoly often results from that, as in the tobacco industry. They're not a monopoly, but they're above market power. So I think we need to be careful that the regulatory structures we put in place don't accidentally make monopolies. Now, one thing about monopolies, we don't like monopolies, by the way, because they reduce quantity consumed below what a competitive market would do. And that's usually, I mean, that reduces causes us to have less leftover value from a market. So that's why we don't like monopoly. If your viewer is thinking, oh, they're going to have too much consumption, then monopoly actually might be what your, your, your student should hope for. Mm -hmm. uh, but, uh, but yeah, I, you know, as long as, as long as there's no unintended consequences of how we set up the regulatory structure, I wouldn't imagine that monopoly is a great threat. Now, would it be horrible if RJR Nabisco uh, RJR Reynolds, I suppose, the, the, the arm of Nabisco that does this, if they got into the cannabis industry heavily. I think not, actually, because one of the things that RJR uh, Reynolds is really good at, and the other tobacco companies are really good at, are standardizing the nicotine doses associated with their cigarettes. I mean, they have this down to a very precise science. Um, one of the things that's a real barrier, I think, to the uh, integration of cannabis medical cannabis into clinical practice, other than the fact that physicians can't do it because it's a Schedule One drug. But if you got rid of that, one of the difficulties is that clinicians, physicians, for example, nurse practitioners, when they're dosing somebody and they're recommending a prescription, I mean, they're controlling the dosage very, very carefully, very precisely, because there's a lot of research that shows what the dose response 
profile of a drug is, and they know how much they need to get your cholesterol down, they know how much they need to get your pain down, they know how much they need to get your blood pressure down, and for them, precision is key. Right now, if you go to a dispensary in Colorado this week and you buy something that's labeled as a particular strain of cannabis, it's going to have a certain set of cannabinoid profiles in it. Next week, it could be different, right? Mm -hmm. And so controlling the dose is actually quite hard. And clinicians are not going to be comfortable with that. And clinicians are always going to be pushing their patients to have synthesized versions. There's actually are three or four pharmaceutical products that are essentially derivatives of cannabis that are on the market right now, Drabinamol, for example. Um, doctors are happy with that as opposed to cannabis edibles because they got the doses right. Well, if you put RGR Reynolds in charge of it, they're going to standardize the doses. So it would actually be a little easier. Okay. So in terms of opening up kind of uh, good quality information about the product and it being standardized so that when you go get whatever strand of Long or green, right? It's you know what you get. <clears throat> I mean, people don't like McDonald's, but when you walk into McDonald's, you know what you get. Right? Yeah, yeah. All right, so let's keep uh, through these. Uh, the next two are a little bit uh, broader. I said to the students, uh, as we're getting ready for the gym, we're going to talk about medical cannabis, but we're also going to talk about drug regulation more broadly. So some of these, you know, a conversation ended up focusing more on your research and medical cannabis specifically, might, uh, are going to address drug regulation more broadly. And so it'd be interesting to hear kind of the economist perspective as you think through it, and I have some thoughts as well on some of the drug regulation pieces. So the, uh, the first one is, um, given the information we have, um, from what we know about cannabis. What do you think would be a reasonable approach to regulating cannabis and why? So that one's still kind of cannabis specific, not just medical cannabis, but given all the science we know about cannabis and what other things society has gotten comfortable with, if you were getting to help make the policy with cannabis, what would, how would you approach that? What would, you, what would be your suggestions? Well, I mean, my suggestion would be basically to deschedule cannabis completely from the federal level. Let states uh, determine their own regulatory frameworks as they currently largely do with alcohol. Um, I think that probably the model we have for regulating alcohol is, is pretty good. <clears throat> and um, you mostly want to keep that out of the hands of young people. Uh, you don't want, you know, 16, 17, 18, 19 year olds mm -hmm. using it. Mm -hmm. uh, as much as they're not going to like that answer, is that brains are still developing, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and so, if you know, you, uh, we had 21 for a lot of things. It's an arbitrary number, but uh, it's probably close enough to right that uh, I think if you regulated cannabis like you regulate alcohol today, which is feds mostly stay out of it, states and localities set their own rules. Every state and every locality will target, you know, will tailor their rules to what their people need and want. Um, and I think that's probably the right way to go. That gives us lots of opportunities to actually see how different rules give us different outcomes mm -hmm. and help optimize the rules as a consequence of that. But I don't see I don't see a reason that we would treat it much differently than we treat alcohol. So it, the model in the U.S. in particular of the way in which we've regulated and treated alcohol would be a pretty good model in your mind. I think so. And you know, again, it varies a lot. Like some states, um, New Hampshire state I used to live in. A certain alcoholic beverages you had to buy from a state-approved dispensary, essentially, and New Hampshire runs for its liquor stores for, for spirits. 
uh, the state of New Hampshire sells you the spirits, right? Uh, other states uh, here in Georgia, just, you know, private entities sell spirits. So every state does things differently. And I don't see any reason that we should expect cannabis to be different from that. I like that. I, I like the idea of treating it similarly to alcohol, particularly given as we recap the evidence tonight that it's uh, that cannabis actually has some medical benefits. Arguably, maybe a glass of wine does as I well, um, or two. Um, but it uh, sets the framework where we know it, it can be harmful to people whose brains are still in sort of infant stages and doing a lot of growth and haven't really figured out all the way in which they should weight risk and, and, and work through decisions. But then at some point, we assume that citizens can make relatively reasonable decisions. We put some parameters around it. States tinker with how they tax it to get different types of revenues or to discourage overconsumption. Um, but the people in general are left to make their own decisions within those broad, like, hey, we want to, some states want to close establishments where you can buy it out in public at two, other states midnight, other localities four in the morning, depending on what that community is trying to do. Right, exactly. So one final free question, and then I think uh, I've seen I think three come through, three or four come through from the live audience. Um, and this is a little bit broader, but fits in with the theme of the night, which is um, how should society regulate mind-altering substances and why? And I think I'll jump on this one first, if that's all right with you. I've been throwing them all at you. Um, and I think, uh, I think this is a tough question. So anytime we go from um, thinking about what does the empirical evidence say and weighing that and just presenting that to more making the claim of what should societies do, I think is a little bit, we're often uncomfortable with that as, um, as academics. So I think the way I would answer it is to think about different competing values for society. And so in week one, as I mentioned this to David, I tried to lay out um, some basic frameworks for thinking through the should part from what I'm thinking about and what types of values as we go through this class and have these discussions might we use as organizing ethics or ethical structures to think about the should part because I think the should part is hard but it's also an important piece. And so the, my answer to this question would be to think about it from what values do the society hold. And so I would suggest that um, a couple of values that we might care about, that I would care about as I think through these issues is things like um, minimizing suffering, things like liberty, and by liberty I mean people in general being allowed to engage in behavior that they want without being prohibited from it, as long as there aren't huge externalities, as long as it's not violent um, and thinking about how we distribute uh, resources or all kinds of pieces for how I would go about answering how society should uh, regulate mind-altering substances. Now I have an, a, an opinion about this that isn't necessarily rooted in our empirical evidence or my own training um, in terms of my formal training but I really subscribe to notions of liberty. Um, in general, I'm fairly uh, liberal from a 
human rights, social uh, standpoint, but also fairly, um, I guess, libertarian in the sense that I think in general things that government doesn't need to regulate, they shouldn't regulate and should let communities and markets decide. And so I don't see good reasons why, because something alters someone's mind to have different types of subjective, phenomenological, conscious experiences, that those things need to be prohibited in any way, unless they overly lead to schizophrenia or just complete breakdowns, which is not what we're really talking about with cannabis. On occasion it does, but taken in net does lots of benefit. So I would suggest that if we care about liberty in particular, we don't want to be prohibiting mind-altering substances from a government standpoint. Um, and then if we care about minimizing suffering, there's a lot of evidence that mind-altering substances taken in, the, in small dosages, things like LSD, things like cannabis, can actually add to an overall positive subjective conscious experience. And so studies on LSD showing people were able to be more creative and problem solving after that. Um, I know, um, you know that from the, from, from the science, from talking uh, kind of anecdotally with people, all experiences, right, cannabis can be something that reduces anxiety, that allows people to um, have different uh, abilities or different, um, uh, I guess different abilities to, to be able to work through a problem and be more calm and more relaxed, and that has different impacts on the brain. So I think to that question, and then if you have anything to add, I'll certainly you add, I think from a minimizing suffering as a something that we might care about, and but more particularly liberty and freedom from uh, freedom from things and freedom from government intervention when it's not necessary, the regulation of mind-altering substances from a prohibition standpoint, I think is troubling. Now, regulating, like we talked about, regulating cannabis as alcohol in a sort of a, uh, in, in a society, I think makes a lot of sense. I think protecting children from it, protecting certain, um, in certain situations, limiting the access to it makes sense. But prohibiting something based on the idea that it alters your subjective experience for some amount of time while consuming it is doesn't seem to be fit in line with values of minimizing suffering and um, um, liberty. Yeah, I would say that my answer would be uh, simpler than, than that as an economist. Uh, and, um, and given that that's sort of what my white coat is uh, all about, I'm gonna restrict my answer to that. Um, and we would, uh, we would basically say that uh, unless something has a negative externality attached to it, we, we wouldn't want to restrict it. So if something is consumed and it hurts people not engaged in the transaction, then we'd want to, at that point, we'd, we'd, we'd want to constrain it in some way. Um, now, the only caveat I would, I would add to something that is in some sense mind-altering I mean, let's, I mean, just use a, maybe an easy example like fentanyl or like heroin. Right? Um, these, are, these are substances that can very easily kill a person. And, uh, if a, and to the extent that the person in the altered state 
is different than the person in the unaltered state. You could consider that an externality, right? So that if I, if I in my own state now uh, engage in transactions, and then I take a heavy dose of heroin, and I'm no longer able to evaluate uh, any longer the impact of my actions, then you can see that my, my altered me on heroin uh, is imposing an externality on my unaltered me, because right? right? I could be dead as a consequence of this. Um, and at that point, I think you can begin to build an economic argument uh, around uh, constraining, maybe even prohibiting, substances that have that effect. Now, every substance to some degree has that effect. It's a matter of degree. Sugar uh, affects me. Sure. Um, uh, but sugar's not going to quickly kill me. Uh, cannabis affects me. It's not going to ever kill me. Alcohol affects me and could quickly kill me. And as a consequence, we have reasonable rules about drunkenness, at least in public. Um, and, uh, and so I could see that there would be arguments for things like heroin to say it's sufficient, there are sufficient uh, externality analogs, even within a person, that we'd want to prohibit a person from consuming it because as soon as they do, they become that different person that imposes costs on themselves without their own consent. In that sense. There's some stuff in contract law, I think, about this, particularly being intoxicated and not being able to commit to a dynamic contract. Exactly right. So, uh, so I, I can see arguments for that, but, but generally speaking, I would say I, I don't care as an economist about whether something alters your mind or your glycemic blood sugar level, right? Uh, I care that a person makes a free exchange. Um, if there's no externality, then I don't care anymore. Um, so only if there's clear externality, or if there's a clear ex internality, it's uh, another way of putting it within, within yourself, would I say that we could increasingly restrict it as the externality slash internality gets bigger. And at some point, it's optimal to say no. Nobody can get it. I wouldn't give anybody strict knot. Right? Yeah. So you, you're not allowed to play around with strict knot. Nobody yeah. you. There's no good reason uh, that, uh, particularly a strict knot alcohol combination, right? That's just not. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I like the idea of the measuring state being externalities imposed on some other version of yourself, like the, the non-ultra version of yourself and how we might think about that, and externalities posed on people that come in contact with you or externalities to society and using that as kind of a, a litmus test or a one metric for thinking about how to regulate mind alteration. Yeah, sure. I mean, we, I, we should absolutely should not let you consume any any significant amount of THC and then get in the car and drive. Yeah. I mean, that's just, we don't let you consume any significant amount of alcohol. And that's that's Right, let's move to some of the questions that have come through on the live post. It looks like there were actually were a couple. And so the first one here says, I wonder if the perception of cannabis is at all generational. Um, and I think the answer to that is yes. Um, but I don't actually, I don't know what the latest survey data is in terms of people from uh, baby boomers to Generation X to millennials to whatever comes after us as millennials and their perceptions of cannabis. Do you know? Yeah, I do. There, there's, there is, a, I mean, I, mean, I, I say this as someone who's now almost 53, and so I can remember being uh, being 18. Did you recall? I do. I think it's in cannabis, so my, my memory is in that. Uh, uh, so uh, every generation thinks that they're different than the previous generation, mm -hmm. uh, and they continue thinking that, uh, until they get to be 53 and then say, oh, you know, how come these young kids think that they're so much different than me? Um, and, uh, but interestingly, with regard to things like cannabis, we actually do have surveys 
uh, across age groups. And for medical cannabis, there is a slight age gradient, but it's not very big. Okay. So something like 90%, uh, 95% of young people approve of medical cannabis, something like 85% of 65-year-olds approve of it. Um, so there's, there's a gap, but it's not it's like not 95 and 25. All right, trucking on through. Yeah, another question here is, haven't most states that legalize recreational cannabis done it through a ballot referendum versus a legislature-initiated bill? Yes. yes. Yeah. Do, you, uh, do you have any sense of the political reasoning behind that? Do you know? I, I don't know. Uh, I, have, I don't know. Of, of, uh, actually, it's, it's funny. You know, a lot of states that, uh, that legalize medical cannabis did such ballot initiatives as well. Um, and, uh, you know, I would say that one of the reasons is that something like legalizing a drug that has for so long been stigmatized, there's a lot of political heat that comes along with that. And to the extent that it's pushed to a ballot initiative, no legislator has to take the heat for that. Like, well, if it passes, it passes. Kind of pass the book. All right. Um, next question here is, uh, the question says, do you think um, uh, medical cannabis helps with early stages of Alzheimer's disease? So do you know specific research on Alzheimer's? Yes. Uh, yeah, there is a growing uh, research evidence-based for Alzheimer's and other dementia. And um, my understanding of the most recent work suggests that there is, in fact, some protective, some protective effect of cannabis for that. Now, Alzheimer's is, of course, uh, uh, a poorly understood disease with a poorly understood process, right? We see a lot of things uh, with Alzheimer's, the, the, the development of amyloid plaques that seem to be strongly correlated with the onset of the dementia and the progression of the dementia. And as a consequence, uh, clinicians and pharmaceutical companies said, well, if we can suppress the development of the plaques, then we can slow down the growth of Alzheimer's and develop, put uh, several billion dollars actually across the, the several drugs that are put in place. Uh, in developing drugs that went all the way through three, phase three trials that were effective at limiting the amyloid plaque development and turned out not to be effective at limiting the, the actual cervicals on, on, on Alzheimer's. So we just, I think, don't know. Um, but there does seem to be some evidence that the uh, symptomology associated with Alzheimer's is alleviated somewhat with cannabis. Does it actually help the Alzheimer's or does it some act through some other mechanism? We don't know. Okay. Um, someone here says, one of my favorite props, David Bradford. Uh, <laughs> a shout from Michael Cofed. Oh, hey. <laughs> Hi, Mike. <laughs> so thanks, Mike. Um, and here's another one. What about uh, in jobs that require a public trust and therefore drug testing? And so how should we think about cannabis for those types of occupations? Maybe similarly to alcohol? Uh, a little harder with, with, uh, with cannabis, I have to say. Uh, one of the reasons alcohol is metabolized very quickly in your body, and uh, it's broken down uh, rapidly in sugar. Uh, and as a consequence, we've got a pretty good understanding, and we, well, we, we, we studied it more, it's been legal. Uh, we've got a pretty good understanding of the blood concentration levels that would be associated with impairment, right? And we also know that uh, if you if you have a drink uh, later tonight, uh, that this time tomorrow, 
untechnological. Right? Uh, unfortunately, for the currency of understanding, that's not true of cannabis. Cannabis, if you were to consume cannabis tonight, I'm not saying too ill, but if you did, mm -hmm. um, three weeks from now, it would still be detectable in your, in your bloodstream. And so figuring out how we can know what concentration leads to impairment, I mean, we just need to do the studies for that. But figuring out how we can detect that, there's no breathalyzer analog in this. This involves blood saliva tests, right? Uh, figuring out how we can understand that in a world where the, your body just metabolizes the cannabis so much slower, uh, that's, that's harder. Uh, it's clear, of course, that we don't want people impaired uh, in lots of jobs, whether they involve public trust or not. We don't want truckers to be impaired. We we don't you know want lots of people to be impaired on the job. We don't want anybody to be impaired on the job. Right? Mm -hmm. um, it's also true, by the way, that uh, that employers have wide latitude in uh, hiring and firing. And um, if you work at if you work Coca-Cola and you walk into work with a six-pack of Pepsi. In fact, some of them have in the past fired you for that, and they're quite <laughs> entitled to do so. So ironically, people are worried and objecting uh, to the fact that in some states where cannabis is recreationally legal or, or, or medically illegal, and they've got a card, that they may still get fired from their private employer. Um, but private employers have the right to do that. Mm -hmm. Working through that is going to be really Difficult to challenge. You mentioned playing a couple of different ways. I mean, one of the, the issues, one of the real issues with medical cannabis and, and then recreational use is your point that there's no breathalyzer equivalent. And so there's no easy way to test how inebriated someone is or how impaired someone is who's on campus. Right. And that needs to be developed. That's a, that is an area of very active research right now. And I think the, uh, the private entity that comes up with a breathalyzer analog or something, something as immediate. We'll make a lot of money. All right. One more coming through. Okay, there's one coming through. Um, can't quite follow that one. Um, see here. So one student says, depending on your argument, cannabis is much safer than alcohol, heroin, and opiums. Uh, I also agree with, with that. Then in retrospective, aspect in history of regulation, what has been used as proof arguing that cannabis is much more dangerous than alcohol. Um, and they speculated a little bit. And so I think uh, what we were kind of highlighting tonight is wasn't really an argument that it was more specifically dangerous than I mean, at the same time those arguments were going on, there were arguments against alcohol as well. But what was what was in the would you get later in like say the 1970s? Why does cannabis end up in the Controlled Substances Act and not alcohol? Schedule yeah, you know, it, it, it is true. We we did we did highlight the fact that there are unfortunate racial undertones to cannabis policy in the United States. However, acknowledging that that's true, right? There is also the fact that in the 1960s and 1970s, our evidence base was a lot different than it is today. And um, you know, this you know, we make we sort of joke about reaper madness. Uh, today, but I don't know that it's 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 rarely fair to look back in time and impose modern standards on people who lived 50 or 100 or 200 years ago. Right? That almost never is fair to those people. Uh, and so, when you're thinking about the decisions that policymakers made with Controlled Substances Act 1970, it's not clear to me that they're wildly wrong, given what they probably believed was clinical evidence about cannabis to worry that in fact it was very addictive and 
was mind-altering and it was suspicious of mind-altering things. Um, there are a lot of a lot of mind-altering substances that were leading to be that were associated with, I will say, with behaviors that people were frightened of and suspicious of. So I don't really criticize the authors of the Controlled Substances Act. Um, I think they were trying to help manage what seemed to them a serious problem with drugs, generally speaking. And there's no question that many drugs had many negative uh, consequences associated with their use. The only complaint I have, really, is that for the last 15 to 20 years, you know, since the 90s at least, we've had enough evidence to know that cannabis should have been gradually descheduled. Right? Um, so I don't really complain about decision makers in 1970. Right? Uh, I do complain about decision makers today. I'll take just a slightly different stab at that, which is uh, I would agree um, that but you've convinced me in our conversations and what I've you know, looked up in the science is that one, the science still isn't fantastic now because of all the restrictions on doing it's hard. Yeah. It's hard to do research on cannabis. But it does seem that there were some of the things that have been written, some of the for example, the Nixon tapes and some of the things that Nixon did specifically under his administration, whether it was the Controlled Substance Act or the way that it was then immediately enforced, it's hard to look at Nixon didn't write the Controlled Substances Act. That's true. Yeah. Senators and congressmen did. And Nixon was uh, not an ideal person. Um, <laughs> but I don't I don't believe that that his his really uh, nasty racial animus was shared in the same way uh, with throughout three hundred or four hundred and thirty five members of Congress in the Senate. Yeah. Uh, the, and you're and you're kind of looking back at it's the science just wasn't very good at at, at the time. It looked scary. And it looked scary. It looked scary, and they reacted. And and like I said, I don't necessarily blame them, but for 15 years it hasn't looked scary, and we should have done a better <laughs> job. But, I mean, just, just I mean, the Controlled Substances Act has built into it mechanisms to change, uh, and we should have availed ourselves of those mechanisms. And, and over the last say 15 years, it really has been on the. Uh, the administration in the executive branch yes. specifically for not making these changes. I mean, going back at least to early 2000s. Well, and, and, you know, as much as we as people today in some sense are uh, beating up on Jeff Sessions, and I'm not going to take a political stand one way or the other about that, but the Obama administration, Eric Holder and the Obama administration had the authority to deschedule marijuana or reschedule. He didn't do it. The attorney generals during the Bush administration had the authority, they didn't do it. All of them had the same evidence, essentially, that Jeff Session has today. So, I mean, the, the National Academies of Sciences, actually, actually that, and National Institute of Medicine in 1999, put out, at that point, a survey of the literature, a very comprehensive review of the literature, that at that point said, okay, we've got, we've got evidence that there, that there is, in fact, there are uses. So, the Bush administration and the Obama administration failed to alter the treatment of cannabis. Uh, so, whatever you might think of Sessions, he's not unique uh, in his stance towards it. The exception really was the cold memo at the tail end, yeah, yeah. at all. Right. It still wasn't rescheduling. And that was because of the states. Yeah. If the states had not moved, the federal government, there's no evidence that Holder or, or, or Obama would have unilaterally uh, loosened the range of cannabis. So, uh, yeah, I don't give any of them a pass at this point. Uh, we've not done a great job with. Uh, 
with making evidence-based decisions here, and we need to do better. Well, on that theme, that is what we are trying to do with this class. We are trying to provide uh, more evidence-based uh, science to address some of these major policy issues, some of these major public challenges. Mm -hmm. And uh, we'll, we'll, we'll have some opinions. We'll try to be clear about when their opinions and when it's coming from, from more empirical science. Um, I hope this conversation with David for the first kind of conversation with this class highlights a lot of the nuances in these public problems, right? It's not that just um, we can sit here and say, well, we should just completely legalize uh, cannabis recreation and, and now it's done and it's in stores everywhere. It's not how the policy process works. And then these things aren't unambiguously good or unambiguously bad. There are good things that come from cannabis use, and there are some um, physical harms that come as well. And so thinking about these things and both, again, rooted in what is society already okay with? Well, in the U.S., we're already okay with alcohol being legal and for most of society. We're okay with tobacco being legal for most of society. And so are we applying that same standard logically and rationally to other drugs? One of the things I wanted to talk a little bit more about was whether or not we do that well and how we would how we would go about doing that. Maybe that's conversations with the students in the class we can have in the Google Classroom moving forward. Um, but I hope this was a, a fun, enjoyable first kind of live conversation. This is the first time we've done this. You did the first podcast and now the first uh, live discussion. So many thanks for that. Um, and uh, thanks everyone for paying attention and for following with us tonight. Next week, just to highlight again, we'll meet at 8 p.m. Eastern instead of 7 p.m. Um, John Schuchler is unable to join us, but Greg Gauls will be with us, and so we'll talk about democracy and some international affairs. It'll be more on international affairs uh, from a U.S. perspective than specifically presidential deceit. Uh, but we'll walk through some of that next week, and I uh, hope you continue to join us. And, and thanks again, Dave. Thanks for taking time on your Wednesday night to hang out with Mia and me and have a chat about things we think are interesting. Sounds good, I enjoyed it. Thanks. Thanks, bud.